Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the only new release for 2018 to come out this week, Insidious The Last Key, as well as two of the laggers from the 2017 film season and the, you know, the in-between year awards push for the rest of us. Uh, first up, Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill and Molly's Game, the latest from Aaron Sorkin. Let's get started. Please, there's someone right in front of you. I don't see anything. Be careful. You're going to touch it. I've mentioned this before, but January is not a good time for the movies. It used to be January and August were the worst times of the year for movies because those are the dump months that Hollywood puts the things that nobody wants to see. Because August, people are all people are all tired by the end of the summer and they're ready to go back to work and school and don't have the money to really afford things like they did in June and July and now May. And January is kind of the same thing. People are just done with the holidays. They're not really interested in going to the movies. Plus, a lot of places, it's really super cold. This past week, for me, it's been in the negatives at night. So people aren't exactly going out to see movies as much as the rest of the world. So there's a definite dip from the weather and from people's financial positions where they can't really afford to go see as many movies as they, as they would like to. You know, who's to blame for that, Hollywood? Point is, um, January and August are not the best months. August has kind of seen an uptick. August was when we got Guardians of the Galaxy. August was when Kubo came out. Uh, plenty of good stuff has come out in August's past, recently. August has started to see a turnaround. January, not so much. Uh, I think the best thing I've seen in a January season, you know, as a reviewer, is uh, Kung Fu Panda 3. And even then, it's not even the best of the Kung Fu Pandas. It's just a good movie. You know? Like, I don't... It, 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 got, it just got saddled with January. Most of the only good January releases are layovers from the awards season in December. You know? So, yeah, this, this time of year bring, brought us things like Resident Evil and uh, that Resident Evil movie last year, the Underworld movie last year, A Dog's Purpose. A lot of real stinkers to come out in January. And this one isn't really that much of an exception, although people seem to be really passionate about it. Uh, Insidious is a franchise that people, horror fans seem to love. Not all horror fans, but there's a good number of horror fans that really are into the Insidious franchise, I am not one of them. I do not much care for Insidious. I think it is an overhyped, cheap movie that people are giving way too much credit where it's not due. Uh, the movies are pretty standard as far as horror goes. I've seen way more interesting horror movies even come out of Blumhouse. You know, Blumhouse gave us things like Get Out and Sinister. And there are people who do great things with horror through Blumhouse. Insidious is not really one of them. Insidious is kind of rote. You know, it's not really that interesting of a haunted house movie. You know, the actor people say like, oh, but these actors are so good. And they're not really. I mean, they're not, they're, they're, they're not doing the best stuff. 
acting wise. Like they aren't really giving, you know, grade A performances, and the writing isn't exactly helping them too either. Like the past couple of movies have focused on Lin Shay as Elise, who is a medium psychic sort of thing. Not quite sure, but she is the she is the kind of person. But I mean, she is the medium. She is the one that goes between the spirit world and the real world, and. People are saying, like, oh, but Lin Shea is so great in these movies. And sometimes, like, there were some moments of, of good performances from her in this one. But whether or not she's good, I can't tell because this writing is stupid. This writing is really weak. You know, this feel you know, this, this, this isn't exactly, like, A-list material. I mean, this isn't, like the writing for Rosemary's Baby or the first Exorcist movie. These are pretty schlocky. This is pretty schlocky dialogue. And Lin Shay, however good she is, is just doing her best. You know? I'm not going to say she's a great actress because of the Insidious movies, because that isn't exactly a showcase for acting. Um, this time around, it's the second of the prequels that they've done because, you know, spoilers for Insidious 1 that killed off their most popular character by accident. Not by accident in the plot, by accident in the meta. Metatextually, Elise became one of their most popular characters, or at least one of their favorite characters to utilize, and instead of putting in a new medium for them to interact with and for them to use from then on, they did flashbacks to Elise when she was alive. So... We've, we're at that point now where Elise looks older than she did in the first movie, but we're, we're supposed to believe that she is the same age, if not younger, than those first couple of movies. Ay That's the problem with doing prequels, you know? We're supposed to believe that you were that person back in the day. You were the same person back in the day before the events of the first, of the first movie. Uh, but this time around, uh, it goes into her personal backstory, even going so far as to her childhood, the origin of her powers, and the first encounter she's ever had with, like, a, a, a para-spiritual being, I guess. You know? Uh, one of the first demons that she encountered as a kid. And her facing that demon again, this time around, with her nieces. Her nieces get involved this time uh, in the plot, and even feels like set up for future installments, but not that it will probably go anywhere. But uh, it's a standard, it's a standard movie after that. That's the setup. They go back to her hometown. She faces off with the demon. And then by the end, it turns into some kind of really poorly executed, like, superhero fight movie. Where she has to fight the demon using superpowers <laughs> that come out of nowhere. And then it's all the same blue, blue gel in the lights. Fog machine running off offset, and and everything else is dark. You know, it's the same kind of cheap cheap trick they've used since the first Insidious movie. And it's once again, I'm not interested. I genuinely am not interested. And the thing was, this time around, it tried to go more interesting places plot wise, so it wasn't as fun to make fun of, which is what me and my nephew do to all of these movies. These movies are more fun to mock for me and my nephew than they are to sit and enjoy. That's the thing about this 
franchise and about this genre, sadly. There's some good horror movies. It was phenomenal. Get Out was fantastic. So when schlocky, and not that schlocky stuff like this is bad, but at least make it interesting is all, you know? In this day and age, you have to provide something new to entice people. Otherwise, you're just going to be the same tropes we've been watching over and over again since the 80s. And that's not interesting. And that's not something I want to watch. I want something more than that. You know, who, but who cares? No big deal. I want more from you horror, horror directors. And people are willing to give it. The rest of them just are okay with the, sh with the same schlock. Uh, so yeah, Insidious, not for me. If you've enjoyed any of them, you'll probably enjoy this one too. It's pretty much the same thing. It's just the same thing is not for me. And this time around, it wasn't even all that fun to mock. So it's the worst of both worlds, as it were. Eh, but I guess that's what to expect when you start, when, when, uh, Hollywood starts releasing January pictures. So first movie of 2018, it stinks. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! For without victory, there can be no survival. I'm not as familiar with Churchill. I do know he's become very con. I mean, he was always controversial, but there's a definite controversial nature to him as a prime minister because there's a lot of stuff that people don't tend to talk about his uh, administration that went down that really paints him in a negative light. That you know, th things about like uh, uh, human rights and uh, you know. The treatment, uh, treatment of other, it's more like it's, it's politics. It's what you favor in a in a in a political administration, and he was not exactly the best administrator. But I think even he would admit that. Um, so for darkest hour, we are we have um, by Gary Oldman, name almost escaped me there for a second. Gary Oldman uh, as as Churchill. Uh, I'm not sure if they... I don't think it was makeup. I think he did gain weight for the role. And it works. It works. You know, he you know he doesn't... You know, it's, it's, it's an odd-looking Churchill. But he gets it off in the performance more than anything else. And that's what makes up for it. Um, th and it follows from Neville Chamberlain's uh, resignation after a vote of no confidence from the parliament to the very to the end of Operation Dynamo, and I, it ends on uh, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall fight them on the landing strips. That uh, speech to parliament, and it's about kind of how tumultuous the time was, the odds stacked against him, as well as his own personal failings because he was you know in debt. As a prime in his first and you know as for a time as prime minister, 
and he was an alcoholic and he was very scatterbrained and he was old and he was starting to lose you know his mental capacity in a lot of places like he would mumble a lot to his secretary his secretary by the way who didn't get hired by him until after the events of this movie fun fact fun fact about actual history um but it's all like it's not a bad movie it's good it's a good thing it just it really wants you to, it really wants to portray uh, Churchill as some some kind of guy he wasn't. Churchill was all you know like they do kind of acknowledge that he was bombastic and that he kind of rubbed people the wrong way, but he you know he didn't like like there's a whole scene that devotes to him going on the on the tube, uh, the London Underground and taking the train to work. He never did that. He would never do that. That was not the kind of guy he was. That whole scene was to try and showcase like, oh, he gained inspiration to to not make a deal with Hitler based on the feelings of the London public. And the public were actually okay with making peace with Hitler. Like, that's the thing. I read a great, um, I think it was Slate article about the facts behind uh, Churchill and this movie. And Slate, then the art, and the you know the writer even commented in the article that George Orwell, who was an, who was a journalist at the time, talked to his editor about the idea of Churchill making a deal with Hitler, and the editor wrote, you know, I could paint it in such a way that the people would welcome fascism with open arms. That's the thing, the Londoner, Londoners and the British public weren't against Hitler like they were like they have be, like they like people have since become. People are now, you know, hateful of Hitler and treat him as a monster. Most of that information was not known to the public at large. For the most part, they did either they knew or they did and didn't care or it just wasn't talked about. You know, that wasn't talked about enough that people were that it was known at at large the way it is now. So to the idea that he would go about gaining support, making sure that he got the support of his vote of the voting public and of his other prime minister and of his other ministers in parliament before he made this decision. No, he made this decision on his own. Damn it. You're undermining the whole aspect of his character. The fact that he was a bull and he charged headfirst into things, whether it was right or wrong. That's not, you know, it's a very, very uh, lionistic portrayal of uh of Churchill in the sense that it wants to portray him as some as some kind of great hero of the 20th 20th century yes yes we are in the 21st century now yes yeah, so some kind of great true hero of the 20th century and he got a lot of things done militarily but this movie really wants to emphasize certain aspects of his character more than others and it's to the it's to the point where it's very much not a true portrayal of Churchill as much as just a a sort of like hey look at how great this guy was eh eh isn't this guy super right am i right dude totally right and yeah, it kind of falls apart at that point. But that's all in the writing aspect. It's all in the writing and production aspect of it. Not the actors and the director. They all do a solid job. It's just what the, the story they're trying to tell is very much full of historical holes. Like this 
certain things ha didn't happen the way they made it out to be. And they made it out to and happen that way to paint Churchill in a better light against all things considered, you know? But, you know, th that's always been happening. And it's just a matter of, I'm at the point now where, yes, it's always been happening, but we've proven that it doesn't need to do, we don't need to do it that way. We can tell true stories without making stuff up. So the idea that you need to make stuff up in order to tell your true story is bollocks. I used that uh, earlier today in a conversation. I, 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 it works here. Hey, it's definitely in fitting with the, the, with the uh, setting. So yeah, it's bollocks. It's bull. It's garbage. You know, you, that's, that's, that's bunk and you know it. So I, I don't want to detract. I'm not, don't, I don't want to deride this movie because it's not a bad movie. The stuff I don't like about it is once again, contextual. It's stuff I don't like about the filmmaking process and the making and the telling of true stories in Hollywood and the kind of stuff that they need to change and add in order to tell a certain story that aren't necessary. It's things like that that I don't enjoy the movie, not the movie itself. The movie itself is kind of okay, like it's fine. There is, there is a lot of people talking like this. They're just weird, like, like a Viscount Halifax would talk to Churchill like this. We have to walk with a pink tweeting. Him and even the, um, even King George, uh, was talking to him kind of like that at the beginning before going back to the standard posh London accent. It was very weird. Even, even, uh, even Old Man's Churchill kind of had this, this weird thing where it feels like his lip is bigger than the rest of his mouth and is kind of getting in the way when he talks. And I don't know if that was by, by design, but it's very, I don't know if that's how Churchill sounded. I don't know if that's how a lot of uh, uh, Brit, uh, you know, British uh, administrators and politicians sounded back in that time, but it was, it was distracting to say the least. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's an odd, it's an odd little companion piece to uh, Dunkirk. So if you like Dunkirk, this kind of ties into a lot of that aspect. But at the same time, I feel like Dunkirk was trying to be more accurate with what actually happened. Uh, so I'll give that, give the movie that. It was, it was at least, you know, not making too much stuff up for, uh, for, for its story, but yeah, it, it what we got here, eh, it's kind of standard. It's kind of bio, you know, very, you know, very middle of the road, a, you know, perfectly serviceable biopic. And I, you know, so I think Goldman will probably get a couple of nods for it for his performance because he's the only really good reason to see this movie. If it wasn't for him, this would have easily been skippable. But he does a solid enough job and. You know, it's an interesting enough story. The story is interesting enough. I think you should look up the actual story instead of taking this movie's word for it because this movie is making stuff up. But uh, Oldman definitely does a solid Churchill for the most part. Can't speak to its authenticity, but his performance was good, if nothing else. So there's that. He's always got that going for him. He always got that going for him. There's a new offer on the table. Complete immunity. 
We hand over the hard drives. You've seen what's on those hard drives. Families, lives, careers will be ruined. Why are you in this alone? Where are the people you're protecting by not telling the whole story? I'll tell them everything they want to know about me. About me. That's it. And the last review this week comes from another one from this season's uh, uh, awards push. The latest from Aaron Sorkin and his directorial debut, Molly's Game, the true quote-unquote story of Molly Bloom, a former Olympic skier turned the poker princess. And I have no idea who this woman is. Don't pay attention to poker. Don't pay attention to tabloids. No idea about her story, but, uh, but apparently most of it happened how it did in this movie, in which case, damn. Damn, this woman had a crazy life. Um, at the same time, I was also very uh, trepidatious about the authenticity of this movie because, and I, and I was proved why immediately after looking at it. Time published an article when the movie first came out about the true story and what Sorkin tells. And Sorkin outright made up thematic elements to this movie that never happened in this woman's life. Like he tried to, he, he essentially tried to give Molly Bloom's life meaning. He tried to, he basically made up a thematic, you know, an overarching theme to this woman's life. And it's, you know, and, and he, he does this. This is what he does. He makes up reasons, he makes up his own version of what this what would make this person interesting and make him a, 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 a good character without, with, with, with no real acknowledgement of the actual person that he's talking about. Like, it doesn't matter that he's making stuff up because he's trying to tell a story, man. He's trying to write about characters, man. In which case, why doesn't he just make up his own damn characters? That's what I don't get. If real life isn't interesting enough for you, go make something up. You're a writer. You've done this before. Why are you trying to do this with actual people's lives? Uh, so, there are a lot of things that bug me about Sorkin's writing. Um, the main one is that he overwrites things in the sense that he wants to cram as many words as he can into every sentence and everybody has to read them at a thousand miles a minute. He, if you've seen this in all of his shows, West Wing, uh, Newsroom, uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, if you actually watched that, uh, Sports Night. You see it in his movies, too. It's people walking. Thankfully, this wasn't walking in a circle and talking fast. People actually sat down for a change. So he's managed to managed to slow down the actual character movements. But their mouths are their mouths are going. Exposition, 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 exposition. 
That was uh, that was an excerpt of Jessica Chastain's actual uh, monologuing and narration from this movie. Because holy hell, does does she have to? Poor Jessica Chastain has to cram as much information into the movie as possible because Aaron Sorkin can't just shut up for five seconds. And the only time he does, it's pre-planned out. So I guess he has an allotted time that he gives himself for every screenplay and every teleplay. And he has to cram as much stuff into it without ever taking his damn time. He really pisses me off. I mean, the one for the one thing, he pissed me off after Jobs because he was literally decrying people's, people calling him out rightfully for misrepresenting the facts in his movies. And he tries to pull the artistic license argument. In which case, if you're such an artist, you would make up your own damn story. You're telling, once again, you're talking about somebody's life, asshole. You don't get to make stuff up. Oh yeah, and then a dragon, if you're gonna make stuff up, why not, and then a dragon flew in out of nowhere and destroyed New York City. Why? Why not? You're already making stuff up, and then aliens invade, and that's when the aliens invaded. I can't wait for my biopic, cause I'm going like if I want to write my own biopic where I lit, where I am played by Dwayne the Rock Johnson in his seventies, and as a twenty year old, and alien, and he's fighting off aliens and dragon invasions, and the whole time people are like. Did this really happen? It says based on a true story. I mean, I guess it might, I don't. I, you think I would have heard about that? Because why the hell not? It's obviously not based in any semblance of reality. Because you just have to make something up. Uh, yeah. The basic premise of the of the story and of what happened to Molly Bloom was, uh, she she uh, act, in actuality retired from skiing. And and kind of took a break from it, and eventually um, found herself in Los Angeles working for a guy who ran an underground poker game. In the movie, he decided to add in a tragic accident while she was skiing that crippled her forever, and she would never ski again. And bleh, bite me, Sorkin, bite me with your faux thematic relevance. We have to have an overarching theme that defines her life. Or, you know, you could actually tell her story, you asshole. You, <laughs> you know, account hack. Um, anyway, she, uh, doesn't, what was it, what was I saying? Um, yeah, she ends up in an underground, running, helping to, run an underground poker game that in actuality featured the likes of like Ben Affleck and Tobey Maguire. The guy, you know, Tobey Maguire being represented here by Michael Sarah, And not quite represented because even then <laughs> they Sorkin makes stuff up to make make things to make things more coherent for himself and make it more streamlined. So this fake character he made up to represent who was in actuality Tobey Maguire didn't even scratch the surface of the kind of crap that Tobey Maguire went, made Molly Bloom put Molly, you know, the kind of crap that he put Molly Bloom through uh, when she ran these games, and 
and it's just there to say, oh, hey, movie stars are in, played these games, eh? Eh? We're not going to tell you any of them, even though that information's out there, but eh? And so uh, eventually she runs, you know, she gets fired from her job because they say it's because the guy got jealous. I have no idea what actually happened, but the point is she went from running the game for this guy to running her own game and then eventually got run out of Los Angeles a, a bit um but you know by somebody basically taking the game from her and taking all the celebrities and the players to a different game and she started her own game from scratch in New York utilizing more political and financial figures rather than out and out celebrities and it was there that she kind of went in the downward spiral, started using drugs, um, and eventually became embroiled in the Russian, you know, and with ties to the Russian mob, which is why she got pulled in by the FBI. And and eventually she did, you know, manage to get get out of jail, serving jail time, but. Once again, I, I can't say for sure what actually happened to Molly Bloom because Aaron Sorkin is a BS artist who has to make who who's, who can't take real life at its at its own value and translate that to the screen. No, he has to write his own version of what happened to make it more interesting. Eat me, Sorkin. And I mean, I mean, yeah, you could argue that if I wanted. You know, the actual facts, I would watch a documentary. You know, movies have to have a certain elements to them. And I, to which I argue, a good movie can represent what happened and not make stuff up. Biopic, you know, biopics have proven that they could easily tell the stories of what happened without make out and out making up stuff that happened. They may have to omit certain things and they may muffle up the timelines. But mo for the most part, good biopics don't need to make stuff up. I keep bringing this one up, Parkland. Parkland was a small biopic that came out in 2012, 2013, starred Zac Efron, Paul Giamatti as Abraham Zapruder, and was about the assassination of JFK all the way up through the death of Lee Harvey Oswald. And it was centered on Abraham Zapruder uh, and the doctors at Parkland uh, Hospital in Dallas as well as the FBI or FBI or CIA agents who were tracking down uh, Oswald after the assassination, and even got some insight into Oswald's family. And from what everything I've read, that movie pretty much just nailed the facts uh, for the most part. Like it did, I don't think it added anything. I don't think it left anything really major out. I don't know if it was perfect, but it's probably the closest to perfect I've seen. From everything I've read. So the idea that you need to make stuff up to tell a good story means you're a terrible storyteller. Because a good storyteller doesn't need to make up whole events and themes for a person's life. They can take what is there and weave an interesting story about it. A good writer could take my life, where I spent the, ma the majority of my time in freaking Akron, Ohio, and make it interesting to people. That's what good writers do. 
Sorkin is a hack who has to overwrite everything to let everybody know he's the smartest man in the room. And the fact that people still take him seriously as a writer is baffling because there are so many better writers out there who are total hacks who try who dazzle you with with fast words you know fast words Aaron Sorkin the, every Aaron Sorkin movie talk fast just pummel the audience with every all of the words in the English dictionary to let everybody know I is a smart I is a smart thanks Sorkin you overrated bum. So, Molly's Game, it's fine. I, I hated it mainly because... It, not that it was, even was bad, but I hated it because Sorkin can't just shut up for five seconds. You know, he has to cram every little detail into your brain. And I was tired but within the first 20 minutes because... They would he would go off on wild tangents that had nothing to do with anything, but, and, and none of it had even none of it had to do with the actual Molly Bloom, who was probably a way more interesting person than this movie than this movie ever made her out to be. Because God was this movie dull. If it wasn't if it wasn't just out and out fake, it was dull. And unfortunately, I knew that going in, and I still tried to hold out that, okay, maybe it's fine. But no, God, is it dull. And Chastain and Idris Elba try to give good performances. Idris Elba, meanwhile, is the literal stand-in for Aaron Sorkin. Like, instead of having one of her actual lawyers be depicted, it was literally a self-insert character representing how Aaron Sorkin thought about Molly Bloom. So, gee, thanks Sorkin. Like, like we really needed a literal self-insert fanfic character in this person's life. I didn't tolerate this from Mark Wahlberg. I sure as hell ain't tolerating it from you. Uh, for those who don't know, Mark Wahlberg's character in Patriot's Day was it was also a self-insert fictional character to represent, Mar you know, basically Marky Mark as Boston police, you know, generally. Like, he couldn't have, it couldn't have been an actual Boston police officer that he played. No, he had to be somebody who was even there for the FBI portions of the investigation. Because Marky Mark had to be there because he's from Boston. He's from Boston. Boston. He has to be there for his city. He has to be there to save his city at its darkest hour. I'm going into Australia now. Uh, so yeah, Molly's Game. Not a fan. Not a fan. Getting real sick of Sorkin's, Sorkin's crap. Uh, so yeah, that's all for now. Um, that's all I was able to see this weekend. Uh, we'll be right back for the first ever coverage of the Golden Globes. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one. And alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fan cast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. Even the hard one can't go. 
Now, if you've listened to this show long enough, you know that I've covered the Oscars before, and that seems that's been kind of my go-to. That's the biggest thing in uh, movie awards for the most part. But this year, I wanted to expand it out to the entire month of January and and end with the Oscars. So, with that in mind, I'm going to introduce this year's seg- uh, and the award goes to segment and talk about the 2018 Golden Globe Awards. So. Without a further ado. And the award goes to... Okay, we just got finished with the awards. As <laughs> I took a break between recording the first reviews and the actual ceremony itself. So we just got finished. They handed out the award for best picture uh, drama. And uh, so let's talk about it. Um, it was a s- standard ceremony like it wasn't all that interesting and all that you know nothing all that surprising i mean there was the obvious a lot i mean we knew they were going to talk about the me too campaign and be and speak supportively for women and women in hollywood and you know there was the they gave oprah the Susan B. demille award for achievement or whatever i think it's their lifetime achievement award so there was a lot of that. There was an entire segment devoted to Oprah and her achievements. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was pretty standard. Nothing too controversial, nothing too... Like, the most controversial thing about this was nominating Get Out as a musical or comedy instead of, you know, just dropping one of the dramas. Pick one of the dramas. Which one of the five dramas did you not like the least over Get Out compared to Get Out? Simple. That's all you got to do. This is your, and uh, towards the end, it was pointed out that Barbara Streisand was the first and only female director to win the Golden Globe for Best Director, and that was in 1984. And even you know she was like, as soon as she, you know she was the one who pointed that out, like, "Yo, what up, guys? Hello." <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's nothing you know, nothing all that, and like but the ceremony is kind of meh. I think it Myers is the quintessential example of the just good enough white guy. Like you like the only reason he's there is because he works for NBC. That's pretty much the only reason he's there. Same reason why Jimmy Kimmel usually hosts the uh Oscars or does something with the Oscars is because he works for ABC. There's a reason they go to these guys. They're on the payroll. So, yeah, I mean, it's just standard. You know, you'd think for maybe, like, a, a, um, a year as quintessential as, you know, as iconic as 75. This is the 75th year we've had a Golden Globe. Why don't we do something interesting and spectacular? Celebrate how long we've been here and our accomplishments and how, you know, what all the things that we've been doing. Eh, why bother? <clears throat> Who cares? We'll save it for the hundredth. Nobody cares. Like, 75 years you've been around and the best you could do is just a substandard ceremony? Like, okay, nothing blew up. Nothing bad happened. Nobody's going to point out and laugh at us for screwing up something. So we passed it. We we got a passing grade. Yay us. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, so, let's, so let's cover the... Uh, 
the uh, winners. I didn't worry too much about TV because I'm a film reviewer. I didn't pay much attention. I wouldn't. I haven't seen most of the TV anyway, because I you know, I don't really focus on television, and so uh, we'll cover it the way the same order they did. Uh, first up, supporting actor in a drama, uh, best performance by an actor in a supporting role in a drama. Where are those? Here we go. Um, the nominees were. Willem Dafoe for The Florida Project, which I never got to see. Army Hammer for Call Me By Your Name, never got to see. Richard Jenkins for The Shape of Water, solid. You know, playing a gay man in the 60s. He was he was a great, you know, that, that character was solid. Uh, Christopher Plummer, All the Money in the World. You know, excellent choice. I would have loved to have seen that. Him, you know, him get the win after be replacing Kevin Spacey. That would have been great. Uh, and the final nominee, Sam Rockwell, uh, for three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, the winner was Sam Rockwell. I can't speak to who I would pick. I've only seen three of the nominees. And of the three, I would have given it to Plummer because I think he, you know, I think this is probably one of the last times we'll be able to do that. But at the same time, Sam Rockwell did a solid job. I mean, his character had an arc that is usually irredeemable for the kind of character he plays. And he does a, a solid job performing both the irredeemable portions of his arc and the more redeemable portions later on during the movie. So he definitely did a great job, and I understand he got the, you know, for the, for the win. So good for him. Um, but I, I can't speak to Defoe or Hammer and how they did versus all the other nominees. Next up was best score in a motion picture and best original score the nominees were three billboards outside of Ebbing, missouri the shape of water phantom thread the post and dunkirk um i think honestly the score for bill three billboards would have been my pick but it all uh it, i never saw phantom thread or the post i can't speak to those dunkirk i didn't really think of the score but Three of Billboards has a really n nice uh, underpinning of bluegrass kind of uh, country sound to really emphasize all the like the boiling tension going on under everything. But Shape of Water, uh, the who was it? Uh, Alex Ale Alexandre, Alexandre Des Desplat, I believe, a uh, uh, French composer. Um, uh, he won for Shape of Water, and good for him. Solid. Uh, you know, it's a very beautiful kind of fantastical score, and uh, either that or Three Billboards would have been perfect for me. Uh, so good on them. Next up was first was Best Original Song. Uh, the nominees were Home, for Home uh, by Nick Jonas from Ferdinand, Mighty River by Mary J. Blige and some others. I don't remember the actual the full. Um, like uh, song, like songwriters listed in, in the category, and unfortunately, Variety only lists the song and the movie. But uh, that was from the Netflix original movie Mudbound. Remember me uh, from Coco, The Star by Mariah Carey from Sony Animated Pictures, The Star, and This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. Personally, I haven't heard Mighty River from Mudbound. 
Home was kind of generic pop. I wouldn't exactly nominate it for best song. Uh, I would go, and the star, I don't even remember the song. Because most of the movie was generic covers of Christmas carols. So how that got nominated, I have no idea. Like, of all the things to nominate, you nominate that? Like, if you're going to nominate a song for a kid's movie, why not just go with Weird Al's song from Captain Underpants? Captain Underpants got shafted this year at the Golden Globes, I swear. Um, I would have gone, but my pick was Remember Me from Coco. Best song. Uh, it went to This Is Me from The Greatest Showman, which I really dislike The Greatest Showman for, uh, for other reasons, for more of its subject matter and the way they handle it. But at the same time, I genuinely think those guys write boring, generic, bland musical numbers. They, are, they do not write interesting music. And the fact that everyone like acts like this is the best thing they've ever read, it's the return of the movie musical. Too bad your movie musicals suck. How about the return to good movie musicals? Not all of the movie musicals were good, asshats. Sorry, really don't like those guys. Don't like La La Land, don't like these songwriters. Didn't like Greatest Showman, didn't like its songs. The fact that everyone's going crazy over songs depicting a slave owner and misogynist as some kind of progressive hero, just, what is, what am I crazy, taking crazy pills? What is wrong with you people? Uh, anyway, uh, next category was the lead, uh, best performance by an actor in a, com in, a, in a comedy. The nominees were Steve Carell for Battle of the Sexes, which I honestly completely forgot <laughs> came out last year. Ansel Elgort for Baby Driver. I think one of the only nominees from Baby Driver, sadly. Um, well, or, mm, yeah, I have mixed feelings about Baby Driver. Uh, James Franco from The Disaster Artist, Hugh Jackman from The Greatest Showman, and Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out, which should be in the drama category. That's why that's, I would have picked Daniel Kaluuya for this category because he belongs in the drama category. Don't put him in comedy when it's a dramatic role, you clowns. Uh, anyway, the winner was, uh, the, the winner, uh, aside from Kaluuya, who doesn't belong in that category, um, my pick would have probably would have uh, would have you know was be for uh, Franco because he did the most. Him and Carell did the most acting out of these comedic roles. Like Jackman did Broadway acting, but he wasn't like doing great film acting. Whereas Franco was putting on a performance as a character, a character that is very well known by those people who know the room, and for that he actually won. James Franco won a Golden Globe for pretending to be Tommy Wiseau, for putting on a Tommy Wiseau act. And he actually invited Tommy on stage, but made sure not to give Tommy the mic. <laughs> so that was a sweet, that was a nice touching moment to see Tommy Wiseau get acknowledged, uh, even though he is kind of a douchebag and a monster behind the scenes. So, uh, either way, uh, good for Franco. He did a good job. Next up, uh, best Animated Feature. And the nominees were Boss Baby, which of the two DreamWorks movies, you picked Boss Baby. Why would you do... Why not just go fall out and say, we didn't watch any actual animated movies this year. Here's the Emoji Movie. Best Animated Film of the Year. Uh, the Breadwinner, 
great movie, loved it. Coco, Natch. Uh, Ferdinand, and one I missed, sadly, but I really wanted to shout out here from everything I've seen, Loving Vincent. For those who aren't aware, Loving Vincent was a fully animated watercolor film. Literally, every, like, you know the, you know the uh, YouTube channel, Every Frame of Painting? May they rest in peace. Literally every frame of Loving Vincent is a watercolor painting. Every single, this wasn't done in like flash and using the watercolor tool. Literally, literally, literally every frame of Loving Vincent was a painted, was a watercolor painting. Is it watercolor? No, it must've been oil. It was a paint, basically every frame of Loving Vincent was an actual painting. Painting done in the style of, Vin, of uh, Vincent van Gogh. And so I wanted to shout out Loving Vincent because there's probably never going to be another movie quite like that. The, the, the kind of time and effort and passion it must take to make a film out of literal paintings in the style of Van Gogh to tell a story about him is phenomenal and they deserve all the recognition in the world. That being said, I'm also glad, Co you know, I'm also, I mean, like, Coco, like, freaking duh. Right? Like, of all the things to come out this year, I personally preferred Captain Underpants because that spoke to my childhood. But Coco, like, come on. Really? And, and like, everything else. And then, you know, Coco. Freaking duh. So, um, next up was Best Actress in a Supporting Role in a Drama. The nominees were... Uh, but hold on. My notes are in the way. Here we go. Actress in a supporting role. Nominees were Mary J. Blige for Mudbound. Never got the chance to see. Uh, Hong Chao for Downsizing. Which is kind of odd, but hey, you know, at least she's getting recognition in the nomination. So, I mean, it's a woman of color in there, so that's good. Uh, in fact, three women of color in the nomination categories. Blige, Hong Chao, and then... Octavia Spencer was nominated for Shape of Water. Uh, Al Allison Janney for I, Tanya, which I never got to see. And then Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird. Uh, I didn't see three of, the three of the nominees. And of the two I did see, I probably would have given it to Laurie Metcalf. Uh, the winner was Allison Janney, though, for I, Tanya. And Janney's was phenomenal, during both during her presentation. Like, she came up and had a little, like... Uh, little like uh what do you call it uh it's not a stuffed bird but like a fake bird that was just somehow ended up on her shoulder and it's like hush you <laughs> she was great she's just the best and i'm glad she won because she's amazing uh next category was uh best screenplay nominees were Guillermo del toro and vanessa taylor for the shape of water greta gerwig for ladybird Liz Hanna and Josh Singer for The Post, Martin McDonough for Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, and Aaron Sorkin for Molly's Game. Y'all know how I feel about Sorkin, and I feel like Molly's Game is one of his weakest screenplays especially, so I'm kind of glad it didn't win. Of the ones I did see, uh, the only one I didn't see was The Post. Of the ones I did see, I would have probably given it to Shape of Water. Uh, it did end up going to Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and I'm cool with that. Like, I, all, most, all, the only nominee I don't think deserves it is Molly's Game. 
The other ones I would have been fine with. I would have been fine with Gurrig winning. I would have been fine with them winning for the post. I really hope it's good. I hope it earned that nomination. And it would have been fine. I would have been gr- it would have been great if Del Toro and Taylor won for Shape of Water. But for McDonald to win for three billboards, that's good. It's solid. Good for him. He did, it's a it's a it's a good movie. It's 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 kind of it's kind of rough, but it's a good kind of rough. Like it's well done roughness, showing the rough edges of human society. Um, uh, that's a couple. That's a couple episodes back. If you missed my uh, my um, review for it, and I don't know if it had, I don't think it made a fa- made the final cut for my end of the year list, but it de- definitely it it's definitely. Uh, it's definitely good. I'll give it that. You know, it's good. It's, it's a, there's, a, there's a reason it's getting all of these nominations and uh, accolades. Uh, next up, one one where I never saw a single entry in any in a, in the entire category, best foreign language film. If I can find the list, where are the there it is. Uh, the nominees were a fantastic woman, uh, which came from Chile. First They Killed My Father, which came from Cambodia. In the Fade, which was, I believe, Germany and France. Loveless, which was from Russia. And The Square, which was a another, like, French, German, I think, Swiss production. Uh, and it went to In the Fade. I have no idea what these movies are, but congratulations to them all, and congratulations to In the Fade for winning. Uh, next up, Best Director. And as they pointed out, none of them are female. And... <laughs> None of them are female, and all but one are pretty much white guys. White guys with established careers. So, I don't know, although I don't know about the first... No, wait, that's wrong category. I'm looking at best picture. Where's directoire? There we go. Yeah, they're all white dudes. <laughs> all established white dudes, except for Del Toro, who's, who's a somewhat established uh, Hispanic man. Anyway, uh, del, direct the aforementioned Del Toro for Shape of Water. Martin McDonough for uh, Three Billboards. Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Ridley Scott for All the Money in the World, and Spielberg for The Post. And oddly enough, the winner and my pick are the same. Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. I'm really glad he got the recognition. The dude made a phenomenal film. One of my favorite to come out in the last year and one of my favorite of all time. I really want to revisit that when it gets when it gets a home video release. It's such a beautiful film. Like this, that's the kind of romance movie I'd want to see with somebody, you know, with the with the kind of person I'm dating, and we'd both be into it. I would hate for the one of my favorite romance movies to feel to be <laughs> to disgust a potential love interest. But I mean that that's that just means they're not for me. Uh, next up, uh, best performance by an actress in a comedy. Uh, uh, the nominees are Judy Dench for Victoria and Abdul. Would you call that a comedy? That's a feel like that's another, that's another instance of a drama. I feel like the only reason she's there is because they wanted to nominate Judy Dench for something again. It's the whole get out problem where they're like, well, we want to nominate this person, so we'll just carry them over into the, our other category. Feels weak. Uh, Helen Mirren for something I never heard of called The Leisure Seeker. No idea about that. Never saw that. Uh, Margot Robbie for I, Tanya. Uh, Saoirse Ronan for Lady Bird. And Emma Stone for Battle of the Sexes. I'd only seen two of the nominees, so I didn't have a pick. Of the two I saw, I would definitely probably give it to Saoirse. Saoirse, and that's who won. 
So, uh, congrats. So, congratulations to her. She's been one of my favorite young actresses since uh, *The Lovely Bones*, and I l loved seeing her progress into this really into being sort of like an award show, award season darling. With this and *Brooklyn* was another one. Just all these solid performances from her, and I just love seeing her and stuff. She's great. Uh, next up, best picture, best. Uh, uh, motion picture, comedy, or musical. The uh, nominees were The Disaster Artist, Get Out, The Greatest Showman, I, Tanya, and Lady Bird. The only one I hadn't seen is I, Tanya, And the only one that, then the one that I would give it to just because is Get Out because it shouldn't be in there because it's not a comedy. So uh, in any case, the winner was Lady Bird. Uh, other, other than uh, Get Out, which doesn't belong there, it belongs in the drama section, uh, The Disaster Artist was probably the best uh, comedy that I, that I saw last year uh, of the nominees. But uh, Lady Bird, you know, good for them. Not for me, uh, but, uh, you know, obviously it resonated with people and it shows. It's, it's showing uh, how, just how much it resonates with, you know, the folks over who uh, make these kind of uh, decisions. So good for Greta. Good for the good for the, all the people behind the movie. You did it. You did it good. Next up, uh, the final. Well, we got the final three categories: lead actor in a, in a motion picture drama, lead actress in a motion picture drama, and best picture drama. Uh, lead actor nominees were Timothée Chalamet. Uh, call me by your name. He was the kid in that. Uh, Daniel Day Lewis for Phantom Thread. Tom Hanks for The Post, Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour, and Denzel Washington for Roman J. Israel Esquire. Only saw two of the nominees. Can't speak to how the other three uh, compared. Of the ones, of the two I did see, Gary Oldman did give a much more intriguing and nuanced performance, um, and which is why he won. He, uh, Gary Oldman won for Darkest Hour, and as much as I didn't care for the movie, he was obviously the only reason to go see it. And he got that, and he got awarded for being for being uh, that for having that uh, aspect about the movie, for being that aspect about the movie. So good for Gary Oldman. He man's definitely earned it. Dude always puts one hundred and ten percent, even in when it's a throwaway role. Um, next up, lead actress, best performance by an actress in a motion picture nominees: Jessica Chastain, Molly's Game, Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water. Frances McDormand for Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, and Meryl Streep for The Post, and Michelle Williams for All the Money in the World. Personally, even though I haven't seen The Post, I would have given it to, I would, I'm torn between Frances, I mean, like, they're all great, but I think Frances and Michelle would have been my picks, and even then, Sally, it's like a, it's like a really tough choice. I'm not making the Sophie's, jo Sophie's Choice reference. That's that's very inappropriate for this category. Uh, but yeah, it's a very hard decision between those three because they all did a phenomenal job. Uh, but it ultimately had to go out to somebody, and it went to Frances McDormand for Three Billboards. And she carries that film. She's definitely worth... It's definitely worthy of a gold of something, if, even if it's just a Golden Globe, even if it's just a Golden Globe. But yeah, she did a great job, and I'm so glad that, to see her rewarded for that, and congratulations. And finally, the last category, uh, 
the best picture of drama, Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, The Post, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Of those nominees, I'd only seen three, and I would personally given it to Shape of Water. That being said, going to Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is not a bad choice either. You know, any of the nominees would probably fall. Like, if Dunkirk have won, had won, I wouldn't have been like, this is an outrage, you know? Like, whereas I feel like Captain Underpants was the better nominee over Boss Baby. And Get Out should have definitely been nominated in the drama section. Like, maybe, Dun- maybe replace Dunkirk with Get Out, but Dunkirk had better, like, had more epic, like, production quality so like i don't know i don't know but i don't think to get out should have been, get out should not have been a comedy it should have been maybe three billboards maybe colby by your name one of the best picture nominees should have gone uh drama should have gone and you should have put get out in that category which is what you're supposed to do none of this wishy-washy garbage where you put get out as a comedy the way you pulled the martian uh, I was pointing out all kinds of hypocrisies all night. You know, the Me Too campaign was got a lot of voice, ser- well, got a lot of vocal service. Meanwhile, they're showing ads for Fifty Shades Freed during the commercial breaks, and uh, they're all cheering for a guy who openly voted uh, voted to ban contraception when he was when he served as a representative in the Connecticut State Legislature. By the way, yes, that is something P.T. Barnum did. P.T. Barnum voted against contraception. He wanted women not to have access to contraception. And y'all are tapping to his mus toe tapping to his musical. You know, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So uh Ultimate Winner Three Billboards. Still solid pick. You know, not all of these were solid picks. I haven't seen Call Me By Your Name or the Post yet. I'm going to see the post soon, I think, pretty soon. I should, I'll double, you know, we'll get into that uh, during trailer talk. But, um, yeah, most of these are solid. And the main thing about the Golden Globe, sadly, is that it feels like pre-Oscars. It's like the lead up to the Oscars. Ooh, who's going to win the Oscar? And the Golden Globe is sort of like the also-ran, like, um, uh, qualifier round. It's like the qualifying round for the real awards, <laughs> and I think that's all. That kind of since they since they came later, and since um, sit and since it, it they've kind of been stuck in that shadow of the Oscars. It's it's really hard to kind of break free from that. But so far, it was it was all right. Like it's not something to write home about either way. It's not like a train wreck. Nor was it a spectacle. It was perfectly serviceable. Just like its host, Seth Meyers. Uh, anyway, uh, that was for the Golden Globes. Um, uh, of the winners tonight, who do I think should should go on to win the Oscar? Uh, I think it would be hilarious if James Franco won the Oscar, won the Oscar for Best, best Actor. Uh, take home the Golden Globe and the Oscar, and I think he should have Tommy Wiseau give his give his a uh, acceptance speech on his behalf. I would love that. By the way, um, I really hope Greatest Showman doesn't win Best Original Song. There, there has to be something better out there, guys. Come on, remember me by Coco. I would much rather sing that 
you know, like that makes me cry more than anything from Greatest Showman makes me want to get up and dance or something, you know? Like this is me is I feel like only one because it's basically every Pink song released since what, 2010? Um, I'm trying to think. Coco's obviously going to win. That's kind of a given at this point. Uh, what would be down with three billboards winning the winning the Oscars? Honestly, I think there's better stuff out there, and we'll have to wait and see the Oscar nominees and see who all gets in there. Um, yeah, I think. But ultimately, the people who won tonight, uh, I wouldn't be. I would be okay with with some of them winning. Uh, winning, going on to win the Oscars, but. Um, some of them, I feel like three billboards probably won't. Although, who knows? I may be, we may be looking at the year the three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri won Best Picture for the Oscars. Uh, we'll have to wait till March to find that out because that's how long it's going to be. The Oscars aren't going to be until the first weekend of March, y'all. Crazy, right? Uh, so yeah, that was the Golden Globes. It was perfectly serviceable. And with all that rigmarole out of the way, we'll finish off the episode by talking, by looking at some trailers. And we've got full and in lieu of the two new releases we got, because Darkest Hour was actually released in 2017 near me, and only Molly's Game came out alongside uh, Insidious Chapter Four, whatever. Um, the, there are actually four releases coming out this coming week for me. We've got The Commuter, which is taken on a train, taking the A train, as I like to call it. Paddington 2, which actually opens uh, in the U.S., whereas if there are any international listeners, there you probably already got Paddington 2. I know it already released in the U.K., so uh, the U.S. gets Paddington 2 this weekend. Proud Mary, which I'm really excited for and I hope is good. And then the post is supposed to expand wide. So we'll have to wait and see. I thought I saw... Was it February 29th? No. No, there isn't a 29th this year. Uh, where is... 12, 15, 17, February 9th. Oh, God. That, that Clint Eastwood movie has to open alongside Fifty Shades. Poor thing. That poor thing. Why is there a Cloverfield movie listed for the second? Weird. Anyway, first up, let's take a look at the trailer for The Commuter. What is that piece? It's Beethoven, because I've heard Schroeder play it. I think it's Moonlight Sonata. This girl like looks like Kristen Wiig's less talented sister. I don't understand. It's just one little thing. Someone on this train does not belong. All you have to do is find them. Why would I do it? Oh hey, it's the guy from Breaking Bad. And Better Call Saul, I think. I thought this was hypothetical. 
You have until next stop to decide. What kind of person are you? Yeah, from the director of The Shallows. So he's so we've already got a bad uh and non-stop. Oh great. Fantastic. Southeast corner. Don't make me hurt someone you love. This January. It's all over the news. There's a witness who was in deep with the wrong kind of people. If I identify him, someone in this train's gonna kill him. It's just the beginning, God. I'm done playing games. Now everyone dies. I'm not gonna let them hurt you. You're trying to set me up. We have a hostage situation. Take him out. Stop this train now. I asked you to do one little thing. Oof. We got some dumb stuff. I'm on that dumb stuff. Uh, this is going to be fun. If this is fun bad, I'll give it a pass. If this is boring, lame, direct-to-video grade schlock, I ain't giving it a pass. You don't get a pass for, for being meh in movie theaters. I gotta pay good money to sit through you. All right, uh, next up, let's take a look at the trailer for Proud Mary. Great song choice, too, by the way. I forget is this is if this is this a CCR original or I know a Tina's version is the one everybody knows. It's you know what's weird. When they show close-up of Taraji's face, she kind of reminds me of uh, Queen Latifah. Like, I wouldn't be interested in the Taraji Pienten Queen Latifah movie where they play sisters. I think they could... Maybe it's just the angles they picked. Yeah, it was originally John Fogarty in the Creedence Clearwater revival. Oh, hey, uh, exactly. um, Luke Cage is in this, I think. Great trailer cut.
yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm excited for this. I'm interested to see how um, Taraji does as an action star. I like, if this is her going full um, uh, Charlize Theron in Atomic, in a, in a, in Atomic, not Atomic Betty, that's a, that's a cartoon show, uh, Atomic Blonde. If this is what we can expect from Taraji in this movie, I'm down. I am all about that. Uh, no, Luke Cage is not in that movie. But was he in? He was a girl's trip. That's right. Where I think he played Taraji's... Was it Taraji? No, there was a Regina Hall. I'm thinking of Regina Hall's uh, husband in a girl's trip. That's what, I'm, that's what I was thinking of. Um... But yeah, uh, that, we've got uh, Neil McDonough and Danny Glover. Some uh, a lot of actors I'm not familiar with off the top of my head. Maybe they're like character actors. But uh, yeah, I like this. I like this idea of um, of Taraji P Henson as a kick-ass assassin on the you know like 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 her as like a James Bond sort of you know hit hit woman. Uh, who do we got behind this? Babak Najafi, uh, best known for oof, London has fallen. Eesh. I mean, I mean, I hope this is an. Hopefully, that was the script's problem and not his. I really hope that because if he if that's his real claim to fame stateside, this movie's got a uphill battle. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. I'm excited. I am excited. Uh, next up, we're going to take a look at Paddington 2. Dear Aunt Lucy, you sent me to London to find a home. I have a wonderful family. I like that you're in great shape for a man your age, Mr. Brown. Ah, thank you, Paddington. Hang on, how old do you think I am? Oh, uh, about 80. I've really got to grips with how things work. Come in. I'd like to get my Aunt Lucy a birthday present. How about these rolling shoes? Please, Mr. Gruber, be serious. What's this? This popping book is the only one of its kind, and they want a lot of money for it. I'm going to get a job and buy that book. Hello, window cleaner. Ugh. We don't need butt jokes. Stop! Thief! Cheerio. Where did he go? Hold it right there. Oh, but I'm not the thief. We're rich again. Brown pee. Laundry duty. It's only one red sock. What's the worst that can happen? Afternoon, chaps. I want to hear all about the investigation. Paddington is innocent. He's a master of disguise. Off. This is breaking and entering. We haven't broken anything. Everyone's favorite bear. Where do you think you're going, bear? Is back for seconds. Paddington looks for the girl. 
good in all of us, and somehow he finds it. If we're kind and polite, the world will be right. So, it must be a British thing because I don't get the appeal of Paddington. I will say, compared to the kind of schlock of kids' adaptations for the modern day that we got over here with, like, the chipmunks and the Smurfs, Paddington, from everything I've seen, blows them out of the water so far. I still need to watch the first one, but I just, I just don't get the appeal. Uh, maybe you just have to have been born with it, you know? Maybe it's Maybelline. Anyway, um, and the last one is the expansion of The Post. So, we'll take a look at that trailer. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're gonna like the real one, either. Do you have the papers? Not yet. God, such great casting. I would, I can't wait to see how they act off each other. That was leaked out of the Pentagon. The most highly classified documents of the war. The Times has 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War for 30 years. The way they lied, those days have to be over. Okay, people are concerned about having a woman in charge of the paper that she doesn't have the resolve to make the tough choices. Thank you, Arthur, for your frankness. Let's do our jobs. Find those pages. You're talking about exposing years of government secrets. Is that legal? What is it you think we do here for a living, kid? Ben, I might have something. It must be precious cargo. It's just government secrets. Yeah, I, that's the one line in this whole thing I don't like. Times was barred from publishing any more classified documents dealing with the Vietnam War. If you publish, we'll be at the Supreme Court next week. Meaning? Well, we could all go to prison. To make this decision, to risk her fortune and the company that's been her entire life, well, I think that's brave. If the government wins, the Washington Post will cease to exist. If we don't hold them accountable, we will. We can't hold them accountable if we don't have a newspaper. Nixon will muster the full power of the presidency, and if there's a way to destroy you, by God, he'll find it. I swear, if that's actually George H.W. Bush saying that, then this, the this movie wins. Is at stake. What will happen if we don't publish? We will lose. The country will lose. What are you going to do, Mrs. Graham? Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. I've been hoping, I, as soon as I heard about it from uh, the Steven Spielberg documentary they did for HBO, I was pumped. I really love this. And it's like the perfect time to do this, you know? When, once again, we've gotten complacent with our government and it need, you know, think the truth needs to be, needs to be out there and the people in charge need to be held accountable. So, yeah, I mean, there's a good reason this, this is coming out of this, at this point in time. This is the kind of 
these are the kind of stories we need to remind ourselves of and 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 try to recreate so to speak to tackle the the people behind the throne and to hold them accountable for their actions you know no matter what the cost to our you know to to ourselves to our careers to everything that's the kind of important things that journalists need to remember so yeah it, it's going to be a it's going to be a packed uh weekend for me uh it's next week next weekend's Martin Luther King Day weekend so I got an extra day oh crap <laughs> I didn't realize that, so I guess that's why they're dumping so much out this weekend. Um, so yeah, that about does it for me, uh, which means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us through our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you like our podcast, be sure to check out all the other fine podcasts on our network. I am also a part of the Tragic Missile podcast, which has finally gotten back in order and is releasing episodes again. Um, where uh, and, and uh, uh, that's where I DM a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons playthrough with a half elf warlock, a half drow, half uh, tiefling fighter, a human bard, and a mimic rogue. It is a blast. We have a lot of fun with it. And I hope you check it out. It's a, it's great. Um, it's, I've had so much fun DMing this. And this is my first time DMing. And it's, and it's, it's had a rough start. And I feel bad for the players we lost along the way. But we, you know, I'm so glad I got to experiment, experience what so many people have experienced since D&D got started. And I'm so glad I found a group to 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 play along with me and to enjoy it with me. Um, I'm also, I also do the Majide podcast with Mike Palace from Game Kiwi, where we talk about Japanese media and pop culture. Um, we should be getting ready to start doing episodes again. Uh, we got, we, we went through our um, holiday stuff. Uh, we should, Spirited Away should be coming out pretty soon. And uh, he and I are about to set, or should be set to record again for the next one. But yeah, it's, it's, I am have fun with that too. I, I enjoy talking about things, and Michael allows me to learn new things that, and find new media that I'd never heard of before. It's a good time. Uh, I also recommend the Ultimate Showdown podcast. I've been catching up on them. I'm like six months behind on everything, but I love those guys. They're the best, and I love their I love their format. I love the premise, and I love their execution. The three guys are great, and I'm so glad they're a part of our network. Um, Vanessa. Uh, has started doing a podcast about uh, her her new place of business. Uh, she runs the she got she is uh, uh, she may have pulled back on some other stuff because her main job is to run Las Vegas Oddities, and uh, she started a podcast where she gets to showcase some of her wares and some of the amazing things she has come to accumulate. And well, her and the store itself because it's been around for decades now and it is the one of the finest collections of just the macabre and the unique and interesting and go catch out that's brand new rpg should be up should be up and rolling pretty soon again uh that's our podcast pilot program of sorts and it's kind of like where we go to post new ideas new things that don't fit into quite any category and of course uh, what's more with feeling the our Buffy fan cast Beyond the Cabin in the Woods our horror podcast um, 
just such a wide array of programs available to you. Hoping to add more soon. Um, Be sure to check us out, gumbiecatnetworks.com. And, you know, if you don't want to go straight to our website, all of our podcasts should be available through most of the the podcast um, uh, outlets out there, iTunes, Google Play, what what have you. Uh, And if you want to subscribe to us through those, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and let other people know that, hey, you like this show and you want them to check it out, too. I will say I am looking into switching over to Linksys. Linksys? Links something. Libsyn. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know what Linksys was. Uh, Libsyn for uh, the hosting stuff. I think they'll be able to maintain my switch over my uh, my uh, catalog, so it so it'll also nothing will disappear like it would on Squarespace. Um, I'm hoping, hoping to do that before the 100th episode. That way, all the stuff should be there. And I might even uh, kind of leave the uh, SoundCloud as an archive of sorts, you know, for anybody who's willing to check it out through there. But, yeah, I'm hope, I'll, I'll announce that when it's happening. But I need to look into, you know, how much this is going to cost and, uh, the, you know, what I need to do to transfer stuff over. But I'm hoping to do that soon. And I'll announce, announce that when it happens. So that you know, hopefully nothing. So hopefully nothing too, um, you know. Hopefully nobody loses anything in the process. Uh, other than that, uh, be sure to share us through your social media. Uh, the social media home of Popcorn Junkie is po- Facebook.com/slash/PopcornJunkie. That's where all the big announcements are. That's where I announce when I'm seeing a new movie. That's where I announce my initial thoughts on a new movie. That's where I post new episodes. It's where I announce all the big stuff that's been going on with the podcast. And uh, if you want that, plus the plus I just finished the Munch Along for the Golden Globe. So if you want to join me in the, those conversations as they happen, follow me on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. And there you'll get the Facebook feed, plus my uh, Munch Along segments where I comment on something as I'm watching it, be it a movie in theaters, a movie at home, or... Maybe even awards ceremony. This is award show season, after all. And uh, that's where you also get to hear my thoughts on initial trailers and a trailer talk segment that happens when I see a new release. And that's where I'm also the most active on social media. So if you want to keep in contact with me over there, that's at CornJunkiePod. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's a little lax now. It's mainly new episode announcements and new uh, movie announcements when I'm seeing a new release. Uh, But I'll... I want to try and find a way to uh, make more use out of it. Uh, that's on, I'm on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. So if you want to follow me there, that's where a lot of the main stuff that goes to the Facebook feed comes from. Uh, I've just I've been using Stardust since uh, Doug introduced it to me last year. Doug Walker, the nostalgia critic, and I'm at, I'm at Popcorn Junkie there. And you can watch my initial reactions to movies as I as as I you know after I see them in the theaters. There, the most recent ones are Insidious, which I actually did with my nephew after we watched it on the night of the premiere. Uh, Darkest Hour and Molly's Game. So if you want to hear my initial thoughts before the podcast comes out, check me out on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie, and be sure to you know try it out for yourself. If you, there's a movie you like. They do TV. You can react to TV shows. Post your initial reactions. Let people know what you think. And, you know, 
check out you know check all the other fine people out. Doug Doug's on there. Uh, Jeremy Johns is on there. I know uh, a buddy of mine from the Spill days is on there. Oddly enough, so uh, he and uh, so he and I follow each other. Um, uh, the Schmoes know guys are on there. So there's there's people you probably know on there in the film community in the film reviewer community. It's just starting out, but uh, if you want to check it out, it's that look up the Stardust app on your on your device. And look for Popcorn Junkie if you want to hear my thoughts on stuff. And then lastly, uh, I happened Twitch streaming. We had a bit of a hiccup this past week. Um, uh, I stream on Saturdays, uh, 2 to 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, we're, we're just about done with Cuphead. We're on Dice Man. So we hopefully should be able to get to the devil and maybe even beat him this next stream. Uh, other than that, we do. I do the Adventures of the Pokemaniac, where I play through the Pokemon games in order. I'm through Pokemon Red, and I just and I'm just about to. Uh, and I, I really need to. Uh, I just got. I just. I finally evolved my Charmander into Charizard, and I'm preparing for the inevitable fight with Koga, and I'm debating whether or not I should grind off camera. Uh, I know I'm not going to leave any of it in the... I, I'm hoping to transfer all this to YouTube, but I know, and I know I'm not going to leave any of the grinding segments into that, but I'm just curious if I want to do it off-camera for the stream. I'll, I'll ask around. But yeah, that, those are the big things. Uh, and uh, if you follow me on Twitch, that's Popcorn Junkie PWH on Twitch. Um, short for Popcorn Junkie Plays With Himself. I am keeping that title. I am nothing but proud of it ever since I came up with it back when I was a solitary nerd and wanted to do that. Uh, that um, but uh, if, you, if, you follow, if you follow me on Twitch, you will have gotten the time to see my entire Emerald Nuzlocke playthrough go missing, go just go completely belly up and be gone. And then you could have watched me try to stream through a, D, a Nintendo DS emulator, only for only for the footage to be slow and lag throughout the entire playthrough. So fun times trying to get technology to work. Uh, um, so yeah, no Nuzlocke for a while until I could get some. I, I think I have a system in place. I just need the equipment to get it done. But. Um, but yeah, that'll be. I'll announce all that when it happens, and it's gonna cost a lot of money, sadly, which I don't have. So I'm hoping to focus more on the YouTube stuff, maybe get that going, and get maybe even get some ad revenue from that. For crying out loud, uh, we all. Uh, but but once again, all, all that depends on building an audience, which is what the main thing I need to work on in 2018. So, and if there's anything else at all, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of corrections you want me to make. Any, anything you want me to relay to the, to the audience, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll be sure to either read it out on the next episode or, um, you know, get back to you as soon as possible if you would prefer to do it privately. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and these award shows are the bane of this podcast. <laughs>
And if you really want to support women's rights, you probably shouldn't reward a movie that that support. Mm, damn it. The theme song for. Fa <laughs>